Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Yvonne Winchett-Sanchez, a national reporter at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me this week at the Arizona Republic's main newsroom in downtown Phoenix are... Richard Rellis, reporter. Ron Hansen, I cover the congressional delegation. Rachel Langang, I cover higher education. This week on The Gaggle, in a highly anticipated reveal, Governor Doug Ducey launched his re-election bid using words that evoke certain feelings, at least to primary voters. And last year, Ducey promised potential teachers who stay in Arizona debt-free college, as long as they put their education to use in Arizona. But is he living up to his promise amid a teacher shortage? But first, President Donald Trump and his key cabinet members are staunchly defending a zero-tolerance immigration policy amid a firestorm over separating children, some as young as a few months old, from parents accused of illegally attempting to enter the country. Under the policy, the Border Patrol has been directed to refer every person caught entering the country illegally for criminal prosecution, including these parents arriving with children seeking asylum to the U.S. Nearly 2,000 children are being treated as if they arrived without guardians, and they're being turned over to government care while their parents are prosecuted. The Trump administration says this policy will help prevent future families from coming. Ron, this practice has obviously ignited a firestorm across party lines. What is Arizona's delegation saying about it? So th this has really fallen into two camps. The ones who are willing to speak to outrage over this. These are Democrats, and uh, Jeff Flake uh, has lent his voice to it as well, um, who are appalled by this kind of policy. And then the other camp is Republicans uh, in the House in particular who are not saying anything. Uh, they've made no public statements that I can find um, discussing this this policy, either defending it or speaking against it or trying to explain it or, or explain any questions that they might have with all of it. They've just kind of gone into the bunker. And it's frankly something we've seen over the last year and a half that Republicans, when Donald Trump is in the midst of one of his epic controversies, they kind of go into the bunker. And we're seeing that with this one. Um, you know, with no sense of irony, we saw at least two of our House members, Paul Gosar and Andy Biggs, wishing people Happy Father's Day uh, on an occasion when a lot of people are thinking about children being removed from their fathers with no clear uh, future in terms of those families being put back together again. Richard, do you have a sense of, of how state leaders, uh, particularly the governor, are responding to this? Uh, yes, because he was asked last week by the Republic in Tucson at a Arizona-Mexico conference, of all things, about his feelings on this. And he kind of played both sides. He said that he was troubled by seeing the images, but he also questioned whether uh, how to deal with families who are involving their children in what he called illegal behavior. Now, the stories that w are reported by Rafael Carranza and Daniel Gonzalez will point out that uh, many of the people coming in are seeking asylum, which is uh, a legal form of trying to enter the country. But uh, under this policy, it becomes a, a little a little fraught because they're being treated, uh, the way they're being detained while their asylum proceeding goes through necessarily involves removing uh, the children from their custody. I mean, do we have a sense of how these children um, are being treated? I mean, you're seeing headlines with with words like tent city, which, you know, Arizonans know what that is. People in Maricopa County under Sheriff Joe Arpaio, we are all familiar with that term. 
Um, Rachel, Ron, I mean, do you guys, can you give us a sense of, of, of how these kids are being treated? None of us have been there, but from what we've been reading and seeing, um, you know, it's very much, you're not supposed to touch the children. There's been a former uh, worker at one of these facilities who said he was specifically told if children are crying, don't touch them, don't pick them up, which is sort of the opposite of how you normally react when a kid is crying. I think your natural instinct for most people is to comfort them. Um, we've seen like chain link fences around areas, which a lot of people are referring to as cages. I mean, that's what they look like for certain. Um, and there's also a lot of mystery surrounding what's going on here. I don't think there's a lot of answers for, for many things. I think the things we've gotten, like for instance, there was a leaked audio from ProPublica that, you know, you heard a lot of children crying in the background. There's just not a lot of, I mean, what, what are we supposed to do with that? What do we know about what's happening in these places? There's still just so many questions. And as we uh, sit here uh, recording this on, on a Monday afternoon, the Homeland Security Secretary just doubled down on it and said that uh, there are essentially policies that need to be changed because if we just start letting families go, it's it's uh, no enforcement of immigration law and talked about changing uh, the Trafficking Act, uh, the way asylum is treated, and laws that govern the way uh, people are detained during their asylum hearing. I mean, some of these detention facilities that uh, were toured uh, by Daniel Gonzalez a few years ago were set up under the Obama administration when we saw so many families come through and you know, would, was Obama and Jay Johnson trying to deter future families from doing this by keeping them detained altogether or, or having the accompanied, unaccompanied minors detained? Uh, there was some discussion in the New York Times over the weekend that this has been a policy that has been debated in two other administrations, and they didn't want to go this far. And I will say this seems to be a little reminiscent in some ways to uh, you know, the, the drama and the emotions that we saw surrounding um, the refugees and the immigrants who uh, were seeking shelter and home uh, here in the U.S. Uh, it, back in 2014 during another election cycle when uh, Lee Ducey was up for re-election. There was some sentiment back then that this actually helped Republicans and they, they hardened their positions instead of softening them as, as you know, Democrats and pundits and former first ladies might expect to see here. Yeah, I think that clearly we've seen a lot in the last few days about people who are outraged and appalled uh, from first ladies. We've seen it from people like Jeff Flake and, and others who have made it clear that they have very serious reservations about this kind of thing. But we, at least from a political perspective, we can't overlook the fact that this is something that plays to an important concern of a key constituency for the Trump administration and, and like-minded Republicans, that uh, they are tired of seeing the border uh, become this leaking sieve or a swinging gate, whatever metaphor you want to use. They don't want more children coming in uh, and being exposed to these kinds of uh, situations. And, and this is one way of trying to deal with it. Now, that whether this is the appropriate way is another matter, but the people who are defending this program will say that this is we're trying to accomplish the, what we all say we want. And so I think that this is energizing and solidifying some of the views on the far right at the same time that it seems to be energizing people on the left to say that, you know, these kinds of actions are immoral. Yeah, there is a mindset that, uh, and it was expressed by the Homeland Security Secretary uh, to, uh, on this Monday, that the children are not being 
brought over because it's a family trying to cross, but they might be brought over because families know the law and that they know that if you have a kid with you, the law is supposed to look upon you differently and this might stop that. So that is a definite thought that is out there. I think one of the things that's been really bothersome or at least confusing, though, has been the shifting rationales that the administration has offered on this. We've seen everything from we were forced to do it because of the Obama administration to we're not even doing this to um, we're doing this as a deterrence. It's really kind of been shifting grounds in terms of explaining what is happening and and why and such. And that is contributing, I think, to some of the um, the hesitancy for a lot of people to get behind this this action one way or the other. Um, it's hard to, to stick up for a policy that you don't even know why it's being used. What could this moment portend about the elections? I mean, particularly some of these top of the ticket uh, races where immigration clearly um, is motivating at least some portion of the electorate, but you're also talking about suburban women, independents, uh, parents who are looking at these images of children sleeping under foil blankets and looking into their eyes, uh, you know, how does this play? I think it reminds me a lot of how the dreamer issue plays where people in the middle on and, and on, you know, the inner parts of both sides of the issue, it has a lot of popular support, right? I think everybody understands that the children were brought here and they weren't making a lot of choices, so we should treat them differently. Um, those people on the outside, the far right and the far left, have differing opinions than, like, your suburban mom will. But it seems like this is an issue that will, you know, tug at your morality and make you see your family in this in these families' eyes. And it's it's tough to see images of children being held like that. To me, it seems like politically, parents and, and suburban moms and independents will want to see a solution to this, not like a harder line immigration approach. But you never you never really know. Yeah, definitely border security has come back in this cycle in a way that, uh, you know, it's it's one of those issues that you think, oh, well, this is the last cycle we'll really see this. But no, it's back uh, this weekend. Uh, there was an ad running sort of uh, urging voters to contact uh, David Schweikert and Martha McSally to let them know what a great job they're doing to support. But it conjures up these images of gang members coming through and, and drugs and inflating what has been a, a great tool uh, politically, which is fear around this issue. Yeah, you know, in terms of the the what this portends, I would say that this is a uh, a way to crank up base turnout and do it on ground that Republicans see as favorable for their interests at, at this point. We saw in the uh, the Virginia elections last year, for example, Democrats really making a lot of hay out of health care. And they continue to do so across the country, uh, raising this as an issue that they think is favorable turf for them and that they think that this is a way to crank up their base and also do it uh, in a way that makes it difficult for Republicans to respond. I think this is sort of that equivalent on the right, that you see Republicans who get uh, really animated over immigration and border security issues. and. Yes, this upsets a lot of people on the left, but these weren't people you were going to get anyway. And so if we're all we're doing is turning out our base, well, if you're a Republican right now, you feel like in 2016 that worked out pretty okay. Right, and it's primary season now. We'll see how if they, uh, once we get towards the general election and you need to grab that middle, 
if this issue is still something that's uh, going around, it could harm or help either side. Richard, Governor Doug Ducey uh, revealed today that he is running for re-election. Uh, he faces a challenger in the Republican primary. Uh, on August 28th, he faces Ken Bennett, the former Secretary of State. His theme is very interesting. He, see, he, he pivots from his uh, 2014 theme of opportunity for all, which has carried him through the, the last several years, to securing Arizona's future. And he's going to focus on the progress he's made over the last few years, um, as well as, as the work that he thinks still needs to be done. Each of his um, platforms or, and planks, whether it's tied to education or jobs, Secure refers back to security, safety, securing, economic security. What is up with this language? A way to look at it that tracks with what his campaign commercial says, and he put out a 90-second uh, digital ad uh, alongside all this, is to say he successfully steered the ship of state through the rocky years of the financial crisis. And now that we're on solid financial footing, we should, voters should elect him to another term to make sure that the reforms he wishes continue forward and we will secure Arizona's future and all those things. A political consultant mind might say that, I mean, we've, we've all covered uh, issues and, and elections. We know that every word that a candidate says is, is thought out, uh, especially at, at uh, a, a politician as skilled as Doug Ducey. And so that the idea that security or securing is part of his campaign is not an accident and that securing Arizona's future must have played well with some group somewhere that uh, maybe it's a word that evokes strength or maybe it gets back to this border security thing or strong and strength, but uh, secure, secure, secure seems to be the mantra we're going on. It's interesting for me because a lot of polls that you see do see is not well-defined. People just, if they do know his name, they don't really know what he's about. So in a lot of ways, he is really moldable. So I don't think your average voter is like, oh, Doug Ducey, that was the guy who was opportunity for all. Like, we know that, but I don't think the general voter does. So something like choosing a word like security, that's his way to define himself to people who really, I mean, he's been governor for four years, but they don't know him. They don't understand who he is or what he's about. So it's just an interesting idea to see how it'll work, you know, in a year that's supposedly a blue wave year. As a border governor, I mean, he, it's clear that he's trying to position himself, at least in maybe the past year or so, um, as someone who is aligned maybe with the Trump agenda, but maybe not. I mean, he's on, you know, he supports border security and uh, the public safety elements that, that come along with maybe having a, a porous border, but he's, he's also welcoming to those children and to others who, you know, came here as no fault of their own. But I don't know how that plays in a Republican primary. Gig seems to be up with at least a wing of the party. Depending on how, you know, let's, let's assume Ken Bennett's uh, signatures uh, stand the challenges and he does face a primary, positioning himself and having a slogan that kind of suggests strength and, and, you know, kind of sends a message to voters that I'm for border security is probably not a bad thing. Uh, and to his image that, that Rachel mentioned, our columnist, uh, Robert Robb, 
had a column uh, earlier this month that described him as the inbox governor, as just someone who's sort of been a caretaker and taken the problems that have come his way and deflected them off, you know, and, and done well. And he says that's not a bad thing. Inbox governor probably isn't the slogan you want to use in your campaign ads. I deal with the stuff that happens. That's probably not the campaign slogan he should be going for. So how do you pivot from this if you're Governor Ducey? How do you pivot that message to the general election? Well, now he's also, I mean, again, given the ad he's running, and again, it's interesting that he's running a 90-second a digital ad, you know, very glossy produced. Uh, his opponents on the Democratic side have yet to sort of get to this level. I was at a Steve Farley uh, volunteer uh, kickoff last week, and it's just very small scale, almost guerrilla style. They're saying we just need to make phone calls and, and beat the drum. They're not yet talking about the slick commercials they're going to do because they don't have nearly the money that he does. You know, with the Democratic candidates, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars, where with Governor Ducey, we're talking 10 times that. Uh, we're talking about uh, millions of dollars. So, but he's also campaigning on the idea that he's a businessman and he's still an outsider who came into public service, putting a businessman's mindset into government. And the idea that he wants to, as he says in his ad, shrink the shrink the government but grow the economy and seeing if that you know businessman mindset he still is running as the guy who used to run Cold Stone Creamery who's now decided to go into uh, public service sort of skipping the treasurer term and his first term and still portraying himself as that businessman outsider. Any good reporter and any good candidate though is clearly going to capitalize on some of his vulnerable points right like okay you can shrink government but you also are going to get the stories uh, from Craig Harris about all the people that uh, you fired maybe questionably and had to be rehired. In business, in his ad, he mentions uh, Caterpillar moving to Tucson and and uh, he mentions Apple and, and Intel. What did He's, he skips over. Right. He skips over Theranos uh, going into all the Walgreens, and he skips over how we're going to become a, a self-driving uh, autonomous car mecca. Uber, anyone? And in his improving education plan, I mean, 2014, one of his pledges to the people was that he would bring school choice and promote school choice. He did that. He expanded the state's school voucher-style program to all 1.1 million kids to be eligible. It has been referred by public education proponents and parents. They didn't agree with it. He muscled this thing through the legislature. It's nowhere to be seen in his uh, plan, his reelection plan. Earned him accolades from Jeb Bush, Betsy DeVos, other high-profile national folks. He talked about it with the Koch network. It's nowhere. I mean, the way his website looks and the issues as he's defining them, they're fairly middle-of-the-road sort of milk toast. You still, if you didn't know who D Doug Ducey was, I don't think this really helps you understand who he is or what he's about. If you're really into border security, the word security may sound like that, but his website doesn't have much about that. And it, depending on what your issue is, he's, he's a businessman. That's all you really know about him. You don't really know where else he stands on things. And that does leave an opportunity for Democrats to define him all over they see fit, but they do need money and time and expertise to do that. And in Arizona, historically, that's not been something that, you know, the Democrats don't have that sort of apparatus here. I guess it will be a measure of how strong that uh, Save Our Schools movement, the Red for Ed movement was. It did something that I don't think a lot of political observers would have thought possible, which is get this uh, voucher program referred to the ballot. So that's gonna be on the same ballot as Ducey. Uh, are people gonna vote for one and not the other? 
or uh, will they be able to, to, to vote against the program and still vote for Ducey because they don't see a lot of uh, strength, security, in any of his opponents who are not going to have nearly the dollars to create their image as Ducey will have. And for their part, they would say our, our job is to just recreate the electorate, right, or change the electorate, go out and just sign up new voters, and uh, we're never going to change the minds of the people who would otherwise maybe break for Republicans. Right. I mean, again, it, uh, you know, the Steve Farley talking to his voters, and again, it was a, it was a packed room uh, filled to capacity, except the capacity was only about a dozen people. Uh, but you got to start somewhere. And it's, you know, let's all make a call. Let's, let's change a few people's minds today, and soon we'll have this. So, yeah, I mean, I, you look at that, the idea that there was a statewide signature gathering effort that put something on the ballot that, that, you know, stunned people. You look at the Red for Red movement and the idea that the governor in, it seems like uh, two days, had to recreate a budget and suddenly went from giving 2% raises to teachers to 20% raises to teachers. Uh, voters still have a voice uh, and that's kind of, you know, what, what democracy is about. I think in previous years it's been kind of, you know, things like ads and campaigns really had an outsized influence and what people actually felt and thought and voted uh, kind of mattered less. And maybe there's stuff going on behind the scenes that we're not really privy to because it's not happening on our television screens. It's happening on people's individual social media accounts and their own interactions with people. And it kind of makes this an interesting election uh, because we don't know all of the messaging that's out there. Rachel, Ducey promised uh, teachers debt-free college as long as they went to an Arizona college, university, and then used those skills here in Arizona. This came amid um, a teacher crisis. He announced this program in the uh, state of the state last year. Sounded pretty good, but is it all it's cracked up to be? It's certainly not living up to that promise yet. Um, and one thing I think is important to note a, it's only one year in. The, the universities were thrown this pretty unexpectedly at the last minute, and they got zero dollars to do it. Right. So give free college. The money should come from your own pockets. Um, but, you know, we're one year in. It's definitely not four years of free college. At most, it's two years, and it's for specific programs within colleges of education, not any teacher. Um, another important point so far these aren't any but these aren't any students who weren't previously going to teachers college they were already in those programs so the idea of creating new teachers i mean these are already existing ready to be teachers they're already in that pipeline um and then another key point i think is after they leave there hasn't been a mechanism set up yet for um, the state or the universities to make sure they actually stay in arizona and teach which means that theoretically they could leave and then you would have paid money for them to get um, free college and go teach in, I don't know, Texas. That is astonishing to me that with the governor's business background uh, and the board of regents who oversee the state universities, there there's no metric or mechanism in place to make sure that this, this is working. Well, they certainly have clawbacks for things in economic development. You know, the Commerce Authority has had that for years. 
uh, it's kind of startling uh, that they wouldn't apply the same kind of logic to another program. The weird thing about it is until I started asking questions, I think people just assumed, like, we'll get to that. But, um, for instance, at the University of Arizona, there's already been, there's 15 graduates, 13 of them stayed here, two of them left, and when I asked about it, they were like, well, yeah, we're going to have to figure that out. They're already gone. So the way the law was set up, this did, it didn't even really contemplate it. There was no, you know, this is how we'll make sure they're here. This is who tracks it. This is the amount of money they pay back. It was just, they have to stay here. Um, the universities have said the state should do this tracking. They're better equipped. They have more central, centralized resources. The university said, yeah, we can do this. We've done this before. But nobody has it set up yet. So people can do it. Someone just needs to do it. Is it deliberate that no one has done it? It doesn't seem to be deliberate or nefarious. It just seems like, you know, if someone tells you to create a whole teacher's academy out of whole cloth within two months, there's going to be things that don't make it, you know, into your thought process yet. And that seems to be one of them. This sounds a little bit like the, um, and I don't think either one of us, uh, we heard about it, but it sounds a lot like the program that he unveiled where you could get the prisoners could get the naloxone in the prisons. Oh, the Vivitrol. The Vivitrol yeah. in, the, in the prisons, and it was going to be the, the, the next best thing, this miracle drug, and all these inmates were going to take advantage of it, and then it was like a handful of people like who... people did it. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of things, the, the, the big reveal versus the reality, those are two markedly different things. And um, without people following up on those, we never even know if, if something happened with them, if, they, if the law was followed, if you know, people are delivering on their promises, because I don't think people really are waving their hands and saying like, hey, we didn't do this right. You know? So I mean, the universities, when they put out their annual report on this, which is how I found all the information, they definitely didn't talk about the problems with it. They talked about how great it was and how many students they're educating through this and rah, 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 and that's very much Ducey's line on it too, but the reality, it's just a lot more complicated. And I guess Ducey did tout it. He gave an interview to uh, uh, Channel 3, not the Republic, but Channel 3 uh, on the day that he uh, kicked off uh, his campaign and touted that, that program. And I guess it would be tough politically to run against that, to say, you know, he didn't go get the money back from these teachers who are now elsewhere. But it does get to the idea of that, that idea of how a businessman would run uh, a state. And this academy, we need to say, is being touted um, today on social media by the Republican Establishment Echo Chamber, the University Echo Chamber, Chamber of Commerce. Uh, they're putting out their own version of the story, but your version is the legit version, and discerning voters and readers should read it. Go to azcentral.com, search for Arizona State University. For our final segment, we bring you Spill the Tea. Richard, what sexy, gossipy tidbit do you have on your beat this week? Well, it was just a tidbit. Maybe it'll become more. But uh, uh, an ACLU uh, director sent a note on Twitter regarding the controversy over uh, Representative Stringer, who said that, you know, there's not enough white people in the state. He said this at a Prescott rally. Not enough white people in the state, and the state is going to change demographically because immigrants are not assimilating uh, in this uh this this go around of this type of immigrant 
He found uh, in the National Review's Ideas Summit in 2017, Governor Ducey talking about immigration, saying we love immigrants, but what we reject is immigration without assimilation. That's what we've seen over the past few decades. At the summit, there was no follow-up to that. Uh, We tried asking him about it last week. Rafael Carranza did down in Tucson at an Arizona-Mexico summit. He didn't address the question, but uh, we'll see if we are able to reach out to him again this week. Uh, it might be a little more than T to see what he meant by how he rejects immigration without assimilation. Ron. So this week we saw the uh, Kirsten Cinema campaign make another significant investment in TV advertising in the near term. They're going to spend another $289,000 or so to stay on the air through July 1. We also saw the Mitch McConnell-affiliated uh, PAC make a reservation for about $3 million worth of uh, TV time in the fall. So uh, these are sort of the next signs of what we've expected all along, which is that this Senate race is going to be very, very pricey and one of the fiercest fought in the country. Rachel. I heard that the Forge Signatures issue has hit home for ironically, our attorney general. Um, If you're going to forge something, I'd say maybe try not to get it anywhere near the attorney general. Um, But apparently Mark Burnovich's mother, her signature was forged on Mark Sims's uh, uh, nominating petitions. So I don't think the forged signature thing is going away. I think this uh, this is the most forgeries I've seen probably ever. The fact that there are this many is just wild to me. Got to love Arizona. I mean, only in Arizona would there be an alleged fraudulent signature by the mother of Mark Burnovich. What in the world? That's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. At Relis Writings. You can follow me at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. I'm at Rachel Leingang, L-E-I-N-G-A-N-G. Thanks to the politics team and also our producers, Carly Henry and Sierra Juarez. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. See you next week.